Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. My name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Uh, Today, I'll be talking with Katarzyna Czwierka about a book that she co-authored with Yasuhara Miho, Branding Japan's Food from Meibutsu to Washoku, which is out from the University of Hawaii Press 2020. Uh, The book explores historical and contemporary practices of place branding through food in Japan. Uh, The book's narrative centers on the event that precipitated its writing, namely the 2013 edition of Washoku, Traditional Dietary Cultures of the Japanese, notably for the celebration of New Year, to UNESCO's representative list of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity. Uh, And the authors argue that the definition of Washoku in the UNESCO nomination and the ultimate inscription is part of a much longer history of manipulative place branding in Japan that has its roots in the pre-modern period. Contemporary Japan's penchant for, and in fact success at, gastro-diplomacy is well known, but Trika and Yasuhara place this national-level soft power branding strategy within a centuries-long history of business practices that fabricated connections between products, uh, many of them food products, and locations. These stories uh, are told through the book's other two protagonists. Uh, so there's Washoku, there's also Meibutsu, which are famous products associated with a particular region, and Omiyage travel souvenirs, uh, many of which are edible, especially these days. Uh, Meibutsu and Omiyage are central to the travel experience in contemporary Japan, and many of the fictional narratives associated with variable edible, various edible souvenirs have become part of the national collective memory. Branding Japan's food is in part a warning then about how quickly and effectively these branding strategies, especially when associated with the pleasures of food and travel and national pride, can overwhelm historical realities. This, uh, the authors argue, is not just a pedantic matter for academics, but a question about the value of culture and heritage. All right, Dr. Trevka, thank you so much for joining us today uh, to talk about your book. And I know that uh, your co-author wasn't able to be here, but uh, it's lovely to have you here. Um, Can you tell us uh, how you came to be interested in this project in particular? Oh, first of all, thank you for having me. And please call me by my first name because, you know, my my, uh, surname is impossible to pronounce. So we'll do. Thank you. Uh, So actually... The, I wasn't interested in the project at all uh, to begin with. Uh, I was actually kind of uh, the, irritated by the fact that Washoku was um, uh, inscribed as UNESCO uh, Intangible Her- Cultural Heritage. And actually me and my um, co-author, we were often... Uh, calling each other via Skype and complaining about all kinds of misconceptions that that were <clears throat> visible in the media and uh, not only the media, but also the lack of any critical voice among our colleagues in Japan. And then after complaining for about it for a couple of months, we, we decided, well, wait a second, we can do something about it. And, and then we, we decided, okay, let's jump into it. Uh, so it was 
I would I would say it was out of necessity rather than than interest that we began researching the the first of the three protagonists on the in the book the Washoku uh, and its inscription on the UNESCO intangible cultural heritage list. Right, and yeah, that's 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 interesting. I, I think your your irritation shows through, uh, it shines through in the book, um, and I certainly I share it. Which is one of the... It doesn't shine too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but I think it's it's one of the things that attracted me to the book because, of course, I was you know here in Japan when uh, the World Heritage Inscription happened, um, or well, right after uh, it, it happened, and uh, was certainly consuming enough Japanese media at the time to think that uh, the Japanese media reports about look. There are, you know, white people in London eating ramen. Washoku is wonderful. Was not exactly uh, the, the the spirit of what UNESCO was was talking about. So the sort of lack of critical voices, not just you know, of course, in academia, but uh, out in the wider world, was something I had noticed as well. Um, so that actually takes us directly into uh, your sort of into the the introduction of the book, uh, which is that in December twenty thirteen. Um, Washoku, which is described as traditional dietary cultures of the Japanese, notably for the celebration of New Year, was recognized by UNESCO uh, as part of the intangible cultural heritage. Um, and so your book um, d- argues that Washoku, um, as it's defined in the government dossier, and then ultimately in the World Heritage, uh, and I'm quoting you here, is a modern construct that reveals more about Japan's 20th century transformations than about age-old culinary traditions. Um, And you see the World Heritage nomination and Japanese framing of Washoku primarily as a historical uh, manipulative soft power uh, gaming, trafficking in, I guess, what you might call alternative facts in the world we live in. Um, And you situate this sort of modern gastro diplomacy in a long tradition of place branding in Japan, um, which you elaborate on in the individual chapters, and I know we'll talk about. But can you tell me in a little bit more detail before we jump into that, what exactly about the definition of washoku uh, bothered you and why it's problematic? Uh, Well, there are uh, several problems. Uh, The definition is problematic in, in from many angles. And to begin with, uh, it is entirely incomprehensible. Uh, this is uh, this is the reason why we actually uh, include the uh, the whole nomination in our book as an appendix. And what I usually do when I when I do a seminar, I have a Japanese food seminar here at Leiden University, and uh, one obviously one of the uh, sessions is on washoku. And what I usually do is I distribute the first few pages of the UNESCO nomination to the students and and ask them to read it and then ask a very simple question. Well, let tell me what Washoku is. And it is a very interesting exercise because it's pro- it's it's just impossible to say what it is. It's uh, the first problem with the, with the definition provided by the government is that it's just kind of collection of all kinds of cliches that translated from Japanese into into English and then it is incomprehensible. So this is the first problem. Uh, the second problem that you already mentioned is that it's ahistorical. So uh, we've tried to explain in the book uh, why basically several 
issues that are being highlighted in the definition actually contradict historical facts uh, entirely. <clears throat> and another problem is that um, it is also very arbitrary. So what I mean by that, it contradicts all the definitions that one can find. There are many, many, uh, to, to, be, to be honest, there is, Washoku has not actually been uh, really defined before 2013. There was no need for it. But whatever we find in dictionaries and encyclopedias has no, uh, no resemblance whatsoever to uh, the, um, the, the definition that, that the, the UNESCO nomination is providing. So, um, for example, in the, uh, one of the, the first, very, actually the very first entry of Washoku in the, in the Japanese language dictionary, from 19, what, uh, 1981, surprisingly recent, it is simply uh, explained as a, J a Japanese style meal. So there is no mention of any social practice and, and other mumbo jumbo that we find in uh, in the in the uh, UNESCO nomination. I could I could go go on forever, of course, about this. So maybe maybe it's the best time to stop here or. Right. No, I, I think I think that uh, it highlights. Well, first of all, as you say, you could go on forever. There are so many issues, but also the the, the fact that it is um, both a historical and uh, what I think we refer to in in Japanese as kasumigaseki bungaku, the sort of bureaucraties, I guess, in English. Um, that's it doesn't really you know hold together and make sense in a lot of ways. Uh, and when you try and pick it apart. Um, as you do in much of the remainder of, of 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 the book, in sort of you know looking at the history of how that of how it comes to be what it is, um, the yeah it does it does not hold together. Um, but in the actual chapters, uh, it's not the first thing that you look at because chapter one is uh, called one soup and three dishes, and that's. Uh, the prototypical or stereotypical contemporary Japanese meal pattern uh, of Ichiju sansai are one soup and three dishes, right? And that's um, rice being the assumed center, uh, the empty center, I guess, since it's not mentioned. Um, and you show that like washoku, this is also a modern construct. And you point out a variety of factors like wartime rice rationing, uh, post-war policy, uh, media, etc., in making this the ideal, the normative meal plan. Um, and I thought it was interesting that you also point out the continuing influence of the government's food education or shokuiku campaigns. Um, so can you tell us about how Ichiju Sansai comes to have this central role in the culinary mythology of contemporary Japan, um, and then how this relates to the branding of Japanese food at home and on the world stage uh, in washoku and in other uh, sort of aspects? Well, be before I answer this question, let me let me add maybe one piece of information that is that might be relevant for the for the for the readers. Sure. Is that uh, we so we we me and my I and my um, uh, co-author we we became frustrated in two thousand fourteen, and when we decided, okay, let's do something about it, and then in two thousand sixteen we published the Japanese version of the book, which was basically laying out all the inconsistencies and and trying to correct the picture that was presented by the media and that was the uh well it was an important book but it was 
written in Japanese. It was published for the Japanese market for the for the people who have a profound, well, profound, a, a kind of thorough knowledge of of what what Japanese food is. And the challenge for in writing the the, the, the English version of the book was that I I didn't want we didn't want it to be a kind of um, repetitive uh, picking on why the UNESCO nom- uh, UNESCO nomination is wrong, but actually also provide the reader who might not be familiar with Japanese cuisine with all kinds of important information that will kind of correct the provide the 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 let's say uh, more or less correct picture of uh, the modern Japanese uh, food history. So this is why we have we kind of provide all kinds of information that we didn't in in the Japanese version. And uh, one so for example, the question that you ask now, Ichiju Sansa, it doesn't or the the one soup and three side dishes structure of the Japanese meal, it doesn't need any uh, explanation for the Japanese reader because it has become through the as you mentioned through the shokuiku education it has become a kind of internalized yes our japanese meal consists of uh, one uh, soup three side dishes and and rice and everybody assumes that this is the kind of historical there is a historical continuity in this um structure but actually when when we started looking into uh, records of uh, meals in historical context we have found that it was the ichiju isai, so one soup and one dish, uh, one side dish, or sometimes even uh, one soup or one side dish. That was the norm in the uh, daily diet, and we uh, we give this uh, several examples from from different historical uh, periods, uh, indicating that. Whilst having having more side dishes is of course was always welcome, but on the daily basis the Japanese uh, population, even the uh, people from the affluent households, actually did not eat that many <clears throat> uh, side dishes as 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 three. So uh, this is already one inconsistency that. Um, has already it, it's actually kind of uh, damaging damaging effect of shokuiku campaign that kind of projects the present into the past so people so 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 there is this um, view of what Japanese ate in the past is completely distorted I don't know if you my yeah, that's um, I, I, you know, as as you know, I also am I'm in you know researching in this field, and that idea of ichiju isai of the one side dish is something that I sort of keep coming across as well. So it was sort of interesting to see it brought out here um, as the corrective uh, to the whole rhetoric about uh, you know three side dishes being the norm. And I think your point that the uh, contemporary food education campaigns and i think you know to a larger extent the uh, you know popular press and media uh, really have this presentist idea that you know 
Japanese have always eaten in a certain way. Um, it is a very strange historical distortion, uh, especially because, uh, you know, as as you you know point out in part in the book, I think the what you're really talking about is, um, you know, especially with white rice as the centerpiece, uh, you know, a, a tremendously luxurious meal by historical standards. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, but but the the point is that very the the the, the history of rice, right? Uh, we have the Onokitiernis uh, book from the nineteen nineties, even where the the kind of myth of Jap uh, rice eating Japanese has already been debunked, debunked to a certain extent. So it's already there is a literature, rich literature on the rice issue, but I haven't found much. We haven't found much information about Ichiju Sansai and how it has, uh, how it relates to the, uh, to the, uh, yeah, the, the real food that people ate. So, for example, what what is also interesting, it we haven't really explored it in the book, but this is something that I often uh, do in my seminars. Is I. As you are probably familiar, uh, the, the, the Japanese used a shared table uh, only since the 1920s. So the, the table where people sit around, more than one person sits around and shares the table. So the 1920s, we see the so-called chabudai, the, the table with low legs, uh, kind of becoming popular. And then, then from the 1970s, the, the our Western style table with long legs. But before the 1920s, people used uh, so-called hako, hakozen, or there, there were different variations of those um, of those tables, depending on the location. But basically, these were like individual trays that uh, each person uh, used uh, alone. But when you look at the sizes of those uh, trays, you, it becomes immediately clear that there was no space for for any more than than three three uh, dishes. So it would be soup and rice and soup, or some other grain and soup, or uh, maybe a small plate with a side dish. But there was absolutely no room <laughs> for for more. So this is one additional uh, example that I usually give in my seminars just kind of evidence that that this was the the mainstream uh, yeah, that's that's yeah. quite striking and I guess it's unfortunate that uh, generally, generally I don't I don't think so but I think it, at this point it's unfortunate that uh, the podcast is not a visual medium uh, I would encourage our re- our listeners to uh, look up what a hakozen looks like uh, because it will as Kasha as you said be, be immediately clear that they're quite small. Uh, the amount of space that you actually have to set out a meal. And since they're all individual, uh, that gives you a pretty good idea of what each person was uh, was eating. That's fascinating. I hadn't thought about that. Um, so in uh, so, so when you, you, you sort of lay out that um, historicization, I guess, of uh, the, I guess you'd call it a standard Japanese diet, or at least idealized standard Japanese diet um, in your first uh, chapter, and then in the second chapter, you get into uh, the question of washoku that we had talked about related to the introduction. Uh, as you point out, and I'm just, uh, if you'll permit me to quote you here, um, in the nomination file submitted by the Japanese government, 
uh, washoku is defined as, and here we have one of these, that, this long gobbledygook that you were complaining about, so let me read it. Uh, in part, it reads, a social practice based on a comprehensive set of skills, knowledge, practice, and traditions related to the production, processing, preparation, and consumption of food. It is associated with an essential spirit of respect for nature, closely related to the sustainable use of natural resources. Uh, however, in this chapter, you show that the definition basically runs contrary to the historical usage, as you've said, um, that retail um, and that department stores in particular were largely responsible for the uh, adoption of this word washoku uh, in common parlance, um, and also that the word was basically used synonymously or with you know, very significant overlap with other terms prior to the kind of revolution in 2012 that the UNESCO uh, uh nomination uh, gave us. So what did the word washoku mean um, before the submission of the dossier and what other terms is it intersecting with? Um, and I'm also curious, I think you're, I think the, the audience would appreciate hearing a little bit about the methodology in this chapter um, and how you, what sources you use to reach these conclusions. Well, th this was actually a very, the, the first thing we actually uh, started investigating this chapter was, was in itself a fascinating journey so when we decided to 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 write the book, the first thing you 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 actually always do, right? When you when you do research, is you look at the word washoku and and then try to 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 find the etymolo etymological roots and 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 the use. And fortunately for us, we we now have the um, <clears throat> uh, lots of data avail available through through databases uh, online. So we were fortunate enough to to uh, be able to look into the records of two uh, daily newspapers, uh, Asahi Shimbun, Yomi Yomi Shimbun, and we were able to look into, there is the uh, full search uh, until the 1980s, and then there is keywords that uh, you can use to to search further. So uh, we did that. It was a hell of a job, but but very fascinating. So and and then the reason why it was fascinating that was actually we had no idea what the sources would show us. So uh, we found, for example, the very first mention of uh, the earliest appearance of Washoku in the uh, Asahi Shimbun was in eighteen ninety two and in Yomi Uri Shimbun was in 1907. And what struck us was, was striking that, that um, the, in both cases, and this has actually tendency that continued, the use of word washoku uh, in those articles was paired with another word, yoshoku, uh, which means Western food. Um, and this is a tendency that, we, that continued throughout the decades. And uh, yeah, I felt like like Yoshoku is kind of haunting me because uh, I I actually more than twenty years ago I was uh, I I did my PhD research on precisely the the topic so I was and it actually struck me that um, when I was doing my PhD dissertation that that eventually was published into into the book to, in two thousand six the modern Japanese cuisine that I was actually interested so much in yoshoku that I took washoku for granted. I actually never uh, 
yeah, wrong, <laughs> wrong attitude probably, that I never actually investigated washoku as a term uh, then. Uh, but now the, all this uh, old knowledge came back and uh, it was cl quite clear and it, it actually quite logical that the word washoku actually emerged along with all other neologisms uh, at the time to kind of demarcate uh, the Japanese style uh, material objects and including food as opposed to Western style food, or you know, we we have words such as wafuku, wafu, uh, that means Western style, and and these words are all new. They they are kind of created in in the uh, late nineteenth century, and then it's fascinating to see how these words and and we we uh, we concentrated, of course, on washoku how it actually kind of evolved over uh, in the course of the 20th century. So, for example, uh, in the early 20th century, it is uh, used almost uh, the same way as another term that emerges in, in the late 19th century, which is Nihon Ryori, or which also means Japanese food. So they are, they are used interchangeably. And then... Uh, gradually, it uh, it shifts, uh, and what is interesting, and here the, the 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 whole the conversation becomes complicated because one of the aspects of the nomination, uh, UNESCO nomination that we haven't talked yet, is that washoku is presented in the uh, in the nomination as a as a kind of cultural heritage that is owned by all Japanese. And if it's owned by all Japanese, that means that washoku is in principle the food cooked at home. But when we start looking at the at the use and the meaning of the word in, uh, in the course of the 20th century, it never actually was used in the sense of home-cooked meal. Uh, I'm not sure if, if you want if you want me to continue, or shall well, we? By all means, and I, I think this, you know, this this sort of problem of you know not only the genesis amnesia of sort of forgetting that it you know it's a it's a modern neologism, uh, but also the fact that it's decontextualized is is one of the fascinating things that you lay out in this chapter. So if you'd like to continue, please go ahead. So, for example, so apart from the newspapers, we also looked at cookbooks, restaurant guides. Uh, etiquette manuals and what was uh, interesting is that for example nowadays uh, when we look into the dictionaries that Nihon Ryori would be a term reserved more uh, for restaurant cuisine while washoku would be uh, it is not specified as such but would be more people would be more inclined to to connect it with home cooking and Nihon Ryori would be a kind of a restaurant cuisine. But this is not the case at all uh, uh, in, this, in the past. So, for example, in uh, cookbooks, uh, in my previous research, I, I, I did um, research on, on how the cook, home, Japanese home cookery was created. And, of course, uh, cookbooks targeted at 
middle class housewives were an important important component of this whole uh, process of construction of Japanese home cookery. So in those cookbooks, the term Nihon Ryori is used uh, much more often than Washoku. Washoku almost never uh, appears. While in uh, etiquette manuals, where people, uh, when, when advice is given on eating basically restaurant cuisine, uh, the word washoku is prevalent. So we have a completely different um, kind of use of the word than we, when, than we use both words than we use today. And of course, the fact that uh, uh, we, we actually argue that uh, the word washoku came into common use since the 1930s through the <clears throat> channel of department store restaurants, uh, again, here, washoku is also a restaurant meal rather than uh, than anything related to home cooking. So, uh, yeah, the, the the home cooking connotation with um, washoku is, of course, related to the um, to the whole process of UNESCO nomination, what kind of requirements the nominations have to meet, uh, the, which is an entirely different story, uh, maybe for another podcast. But sure. uh, yeah, but so, so we see that the nomination is actually created, this connection with home cooking is created by the government in order to meet the requirements of the UNESCO screening rather than um, to reflect the historical uh, understanding of, of Japanese cuisine and in particular the, the washoku category. Right. So if, I, if I'm reading it correctly, I mean, your, your contention is less that the language changed because language changes, but that it was changed in a very specific way to meet a very specific goal. Um, and that that sort of forcible ahistoricization of the word is the problematic part of it. Because it, if you're claiming that it's cultural heritage and yet you're ripping it out of its cultural and historical context, that I think this seemed to me to be the source of your frustration. Am I reading that right? One, one of many sources of frustration. <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough, okay. Um, but never let it be said that you had only one thing to be frustrated about, right? Uh, because in fact, you you actually have uh, three protagonists uh, as as well, and multiple things to be annoyed about, and also multiple things to write about. Um, and I want to jump into chapter three, uh, in which you introduce the second of your three protagonists. Uh, this is Meibutsu. So the chapter title is Meibutsu and Commercialized Travel in Early Modern Japan. Um, so uh, first, you'll have to tell us what were meibutsu, obviously. But uh, you you conclude here, um, I suspect with tongue in cheek, that the uh, fabricating imaginary connections with history has been the bread and butter of Japanese commercial culture for centuries. Um, 
I think this is the way that I've been telling people that modern monetary theory is the gold standard recently. Some people don't seem to get the irony. But anyway, um, so can you tell us what were meibutsu? Um, how did they function within early modern Japan? Uh, what's their connection to travel? And why is that important to understanding the food culture? Um, and this big theme that you have here of place branding, which is you know the thing that sort of ties these all together uh, in the Tokugawa period, in the pre-modern period. Um, and also um, how these... Uh, how what you're describing as imaginary historical connections were created and then used to brand foods. Yes, actually, uh, Meibutsu and uh, the Meibutsu and and and, and uh, Omiyaga part was was actually not uh, a source of frustration for me. It was a, it was just wonderful to be able to find an answer to the question that we ask ourselves. Um, when when we were after after the the Japanese uh, version of the book was published in 2016, we were obviously uh, looking for uh, ways to 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 write an, an English version of the book, and uh, it it became in, in immediately obvious that translation was not an option, so that it it had to be a completely different book. Uh, but there and, and there was one uh, there were several. Uh, Challenges. One was that, of course, we were writing for the uh, not we're not writing for the English for the Japanese audience, and lots of issues and historical connections had to be explained. But there was another very important question that we didn't answer in the Japanese uh, version that we wanted to 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 actually uh, write in to to address in the English language ver- version of the book was. Okay, why there is no critical response to the washoku manipulation, let's call it that way, from the Japanese public, from the Japanese media, from the Japanese scholarly community. Uh, community. So actually we found the answer to this question through Meibutsu, and that's why it was very rewarding rather than, uh, than um, frustrating. So, I stand corrected. Uh, so, uh, in a way, we are all, as Jap- Japan studies uh, people, are, are we all aware of Meibutsu and, and, and Omiyaga? And it's kind of uh, taken for granted Japanese folklore that we kind of traditions that we or the customs that we that we kind of internalize. Uh, but I actually never really thought about it until uh, I was I was actually when when we started doing the <clears throat> working on the uh, Japanese uh, English version of the book I was already kind of in the middle of my new project which is the food packaging and I was looking at the packaging of omiyage I know I'm jumping ahead so maybe I should maybe I should just uh, Explain the words <laughs> first. Please go, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so, so uh, the, the the chapter three and four are dealing with two words that are often conflated. So we have meibutsu, which is uh, uh, the easiest way to translate will be like a famous product, but it's actually kind of iconic product of a, a particular space, a particular place, and very often. Uh, it is used 
uh, interchangeably with uh, the word omiyage, which is a kind of the souvenir from a trip, which is basically a meibutsu. <laughs> so meibutsu, let's let's stick to the culinary uh, meibutsu. So culinary meibutsu would be something that you that is particularly kind of iconic representation of a specific place. And at the moment when you take your meibutsu and give it to somebody else, it becomes omiyage. I'm not sure. Is this kind of clear, this distinction? Well, it, it's clear to me, but mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So I think I think that I think that's a very fair point, right? That you have these special local products, uh, and then uh, many of them, as you point out in the book, are culinary meibutsu. Uh, they become representative of the region, and therefore, uh, for that and some other reasons, which you delineate in the book, um, they become sort of the pr- among the most often preferred. Uh, souvenirs when people go to those places, and so they become associated with the places. I think that's fairly clear. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what is interesting is that very often those, um, because those products are representative of a particular place, they usually, in one way or another, uh, connected with uh, with the with the area. So, ve- one of the most um, famous and often well not not always most famous but but the oldest uh, meibutsu would be the ones that have been around for several centuries and they were mentioned in all kinds of uh, historical uh, guidebooks of the area and so forth so we assume we we kind of at least i i did i i assumed that okay if this has been mentioned in one of those uh, regional guidebooks from uh, the 18th century. It must be real, right? But when you start digging into into the kind of trajectory how this particular uh, meibutsu emerged, it, it turns out that they were branded products, and there is a an, a, a wonderful, wonderfully rich literature, uh, primarily by uh, well, the scholars of pre-modern Japan, but primarily uh, art historians, on the the history of uh, travel and travel-related uh, travel literature and travel-related um, prints and so forth that gives us a, a very a clear picture how this connections between travel and uh, local products were actually kind of manipulated for commercial purpose. Uh, And um, the fact that this happened 100 years ago, 200 years ago, doesn't make it less imagined or uh, constructed. It's just, it just happened earlier. Right. So, the, so this is your sort of uh, one of your examples of the sort of fictionalized uh, imaginary um, historical connections or sort of place connections or, you know, general sort of narratives um, around uh, different types of 
um, in, in your in in the case of the book, you know, mostly food, of course, but that then get associated with a place and become part of that place branding historically. Uh, and you've already begun to touch on uh, the third protagonist, which is the omiyage. Um, you know, and as you say, the 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 word basically means souvenir in the way we use it today. Uh, in chapter four, omiyage, how to concoct a local flavor. Um, you point out though that the word has a history and cultural significance beyond um, beyond just the idea of a, a souvenir. Um, and you do talk about how uh, omiyage are most often foods in contemporary <clears throat> Japan, and you link the edible omiyage to the uh, modern socio-political and economic system, uh, I'm quoting you here, that began to develop at the end of the 19th century. Um, and the very first step in this process was the introduction of the railroad. So you look at the influence of uh, empire, war, the packaging industry, um, and a number of other things, and you place a lot of emphasis on the 60s and 70s in the development of the sort of regime of omiyage in contemporary Japan. Um, and so can you tell us how uh, how they sort of emerge historically um, and how they fit into the larger constellation of place branding uh, in Japan, especially the sort of factually dubious ones that you're interested in? Well, actually, uh, I, I must correct you here. It's it's. Okay. Place branding in Japan is overwhelmingly dubious. <laughs> so, we, so it's not only that some Fair some enough. of them. It's it's just it's just completely. Uh, uh, if if dub, I, I'm not sure if dubious means uh, imagined. <laughs> uh, well, I, if, I, I will I will cede to the author on this one. You can <laughs> yeah yeah. Um, so so the the starting point for this chapter was for me. Uh, a wonderful book by Suzuki Yuichiro, Omiyage to Tetsudo, Meibutsu de Kataru Nihon Kindaishi, which I was reading for my uh, other project, the packaging project. And, and because in the packaging, food packaging project, Omiyage uh, play uh, an important role, uh, obviously, I was reading this book. And then uh, Suzuki like this book just opened my eyes said of course the omiyage and the and the train connection right so the when we think about pre-modern travel and people traveling mainly on foot and we compare it with uh today when people you know when people go on a trip and come up come back well nowadays they are probably they they would even have the Omiyage uh, sent by Takubin or other other um, services, but anyway, people coming back with lots of boxes for the friends and you know the coworkers and neighbors and family and so forth. When you compare this with with pre-modern times, when when they had to walk and would actually have to carry this omiyage on their back. Uh, it becomes completely obvious. Of course, this is the case that uh, the um, introduction of railway and the kind of replacing the the railway replacing the uh, normal mode of travel, which would be on foot, uh, it has tremendous uh, impact of on on the type of omiyage uh, that people would bring home. So omiyage is a, a. I'm not going to do a whole lecture on omiyage. Omiyage has been has been a is, is a concept that has been treated by 
received good treatment in the literature. Uh, lots of lots of um, uh, studies have been done on that. But this kind of switch into food, I think that Suzuki is one of the first uh, scholars who actually kind of specifically uh, points out to the fact that the introduction of the railway made it possible, first of all, for people to bring uh, more, more like bulky uh, omiyage uh, souvenirs, and secondly, to bring uh, food that is perishable. And for example, he gives in his book, he gives this wonderful example of uh, Yatsuhashi, which is the uh, Kyoto Omiyage, and there are actually two two different types of Yatsuhashi, the fresh Yatsuhashi, Nama Yatsuhashi, and, and the, the baked ones. And actually the, the Nama Yatsuhashi becomes popular uh, in the 1960s when Shinkansen is introduced, because otherwise they wouldn't would go bad. Uh, if they if, if if people need to travel with them for for several hours yeah this is actually one of the things that I really liked about this mm. chapter the the way that it's also a history of uh, technology and the way that mobility um, transforms a society and changes our sense of place and space um, and how, Specifically, that sort of plays out in the way that place branding is occurring. Yeah, well, the place branding. I, I, um, so the place branding is a, is a kind of new concept, relatively new concept. There's a whole literature on it that I that I try to kind of at least uh, scratch the surface of, and it seems that place branding becomes a mainstream. Uh, during the 1990s around the world, place branding is something that that is basically kind of occupying practically every municipal government around the world. But it seems to me that uh, place branding in Japan uh, occurs already quite quite early. And maybe if I have done a very thorough study of whatever other place or Italy or uh, well, other other uh, societies, maybe I would find more uh, historical connections. But uh, when we stick to Japan, it's quite quite uh, amazing to see that basically the same or similar strategies are being employed in place branding today uh, as as they were two hundred years ago. Yeah, that's sort of the precociousness of, of Japanese place branding is one of the things that really comes out in these two ch- chapters on Meibutsu and Omiyage. Um, so in the and in the final chapter, uh, you return to the theme of Washoku. Um, and so I want to take us back to, to where we started with that, um, because in the final chapter, you argue that the core of Washoku branding relies on uh, misleading the public into confusing it with kaiseki, uh, or as you say, dressing a wolf in sheep's clothing, which is the cha- uh, chapter title. Um, so first, can you tell our audience what kaiseki is? Um, and to sort of riff on this metaphor of uh, the wolf in sheep's clothing, um, how did the Japanese government pull the wool over UNESCO's eyes, uh, not to mention the public at home and abroad, right? Because it doesn't really, I have to admit, I'm, I'm 
you know, I, I, I found it hard to understand uh, when Washoku became part of the World Heritage, um, how UNESCO had been convinced uh, to accept this. Um, I had actually done a little bit of work with World Heritage uh, in Japan um, as a translator, translating actual World Heritage dossiers in the past. So I have some sense of how that process works. And I have to admit, this one amazed me. So if you could tell us a little bit about the sort of problem of it um, and what Kaiseki is and sort of how that works, that'd be great. Well, this is another <laughs> huge, huge uh, topic to discuss. So uh, as we as we discussed earlier, Washoku is, uh, has been presented in the uh, nomination as, as the food of all Japanese that people cook at home. But when you uh, start looking at uh, just, just uh, maybe everybody can do it, just enter the Google and, and try to Google Washoku in, in, with images, within images, you will get all those images that will uh, show you wonderfully, uh, just kind of wonderful, uh, mind-blowing Japanese uh, cuisine that nobody could ever uh, prepare at home. Uh, so, and this is kaiseki. Kaiseki is uh, uh, what we could uh, very broadly define as as Japanese art cuisine, and it has its history. And uh, basically, there are two types of kaiseki. One is the tea ceremony meal, and the other one is restaurant kaiseki. Uh, but I won't get into that. But basically, kaiseki is a, a kind of a very refined restaurant food. And we see the influence of this refined uh, art cuisine also trickling down to. Um, less expensive restaurants in the way food is presented. But basically, kaiseki is not... Maybe there are some uh, people who might try to cook kaiseki at home, but I would say uh, that there would be... Basically, kaiseki is a, is a, a professional cookery uh, area. But what the reason I'm using the, the wolf in sheep's clothing uh, metaphor here is that while Washoku nomination that the Japanese government was presented to UNESCO was talking about the home food <laughs> that the Japanese cook, after they received the UNESCO approval, they started promoting uh, kaiseki under the name of Washoku. Which, as a as a food historian, I find just just appalling. <laughs> I, I'm I'm just I'm just amazed how a government that is supposed to protect you know the the culture of of it, of its of its of its society is is doing something like that. Yeah, the sleight of hand is is quite amazing. I, I will say though, if anybody would like to, you know, come to my home and cook kaiseki for me, they're certainly welcome to. But <laughs> but I agree with you. I mean, it, it is really something that you don't see in the home, uh, and the sudden transformation uh, of you know kaiseki into washoku and washoku into kaiseki was quite quite astonishing. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I want to um, just sort of in closing the the, the interview here about the book, uh, play devil's advocate just for a minute. 
um, and touch on something that you uh, get at in this final chapter. Um, so you characterize, uh, you talk about the manipulative branding of Kaiseki as Washoku, which is what we've been talking about. Um, so the, the, the bogus representation of Kaiseki as Washoku, right? Um, it's consciously orchestrated from above. I, I think that I, I agree with you. Um, but let me play devil's advocate and say, Okay, so what? I mean, they're they're myths. Uh, they're the just so stories of Kipling, um, and you know, same with you know, Meibutsu and Omiyage. These sort of fictional connections that are made. Um, are they doing any particular lasting harm to someone? Uh, are they? You know, I mean, they seem like sort of harmless, feel good narratives, right? And they grease the wheels of the economy, and everybody's happy. Um, so, what's the problem? Well, maybe I, let let me ask you a question. <laughs> um, <laughs> That, that is actually kind of similar. Uh, mm-hmm. If you would have, uh, let's say, uh, two pictures, one is by Rembrandt, another is, I'm just t- taking the, the my, my Dutch connections here. Uh, we have a picture by Rembrandt and we have a picture by Van Gogh. Uh, well, okay, it doesn't matter which one is which. Uh, we're all happy, they're beautiful, and we, it doesn't matter what is, you know, what is the label. Uh, and of course, I'm I'm kind of exaggerating here, but basically, this is what is happening. And the fact that uh, this is food, and we tend to be a little bit more lenient uh, in terms of kind of treating uh, food as a, as a kind of full fledged, uh, legitimate cultural <laughs> expression. Uh, this uh, this seems much much less harmful but but i think it is and i'll give you one example for example if you go to any uh, online databases with japanese dictionaries and you uh, google not google you you enter the search term washoku several online dictionaries japanese dictionaries the, the japanese language dictionaries and even the english language dictionaries will show you the unesco definition what washoku is and this was not the case uh, before 2013. Uh, if would, if you would get, you wouldn't get this uh, this misleading uh, definition in the dictionary. So uh, this is why I find it so important to to talk about washoko in my in my seminars, because not 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 because I work on it, but it is so important to correct this, especially for Japan studies students who think uh, that it's it's kind of cool that Washoku is, uh, this is the the kind of attitude that Japanese people have and also the Japan studies students, they would say, oh, it's cool, it's it's, uh, UNESCO uh, heritage. Uh, but they don't realize how much of it it's actually kind of uh, manipulation. And I think it's important, especially when we talk about historical understanding of uh, culinary culture, it, to, 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 to just make sure that this, this kind of manipulation is uh, understood. Yeah, well, that's exceptionally well said, and I've certainly learned my lesson. I won't, I won't play devil's advocate with you again. Um, so uh, here at the uh, end of the interview, we always uh, ask 
uh, our guests about what they're up to now. And I know that you said that, you know, since doing this book, you've been involved in uh, the packaging project. Um, but I'm curious what it is that you're, uh, you have on the horizon for us. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, this, this book, as all books, have again been delayed, but I've been working on, on the history of food packaging in Japan. And this is, again, I don't, I don't know if this is the same for everybody, but I kind of keep coming back to my PhD research when I, uh, when I uh, worked on, on the history of yoshoku, uh, Western-style food in Japan. I um, didn't realize that at the time, but I made use of uh, packaging to argue my case. And this is, of course, the very understandable because food... Uh, is ephemeral, so it disappears. So if you do historical research on food, it's usually the, the cookbooks and other resources, but also packaging is an important uh, source to, to study uh, historical connections. And then I have never uh, follow up on this. And uh, basically what, what I'm working on now is to uh, the kind of development of uh, food packaging in Japan and uh, the, I guess the the main question I am trying to answer is why are the Japanese so obsessed with with packaging these days? Okay, well that sounds fascinating, and I hope that uh, we will get to see the book soon, and that when it comes out, you will consider coming back on the podcast with us. Um, yeah, but definitely. for now, I just wanted to thank you for uh, being so generous with your time to join us today on the podcast. Thank you.